Colossians 3, 18 and 19, hear the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And then chapter one, uh, 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 1945, C.S. Lewis wrote a little article called The Sermon and the Lunch, and it starts like this. And so, said the preacher, the home must be the foundation of our national life. It is there, all said and done, that character is formed. It is there that we appear as we really are. It is there we can fling aside the weary disguises of the outer world and be ourselves. It is there that we retreat from the noise and stress and temptation and dissipation of daily life and seek the sources of fresh strength and renewed purity. And as he spoke, I noticed that all confidence in him had departed from every member of the congregation who was under 30. They had been listening well up to this point. Now the shufflings and coughings began, pews creaked, muscles relaxed. The sermon for all practical purposes was over. The five minutes for which the preacher continued talking were a total waste of time, at least for most of us. Whether I wasted them or not is for you to judge. I certainly did not hear any more of the sermon. I was thinking, and the starting point of my thought was the question, how can he, how can he of all people, for I knew the preacher's own home pretty well. In fact, I had been lunching there that very day. And he went on to describe the terrible lunch that he had had with the pastor's family that day, in which the pastor proved himself to be an overbearing and arrogant bully with his family members, and the wife proved herself to be a ball of whimpering self-pity. And the two adult children tried as much as they could to keep the peace, but then could stand their parents no longer, and things fell apart. So the pastor showed himself to be following his own advice, to be showing who he really was at home, taking off the disguises of the street and showing his true colors when he was at home. Tragically, that's how many people approach home, how many people approach marriage, as a place where we can be our true selves, where the rules don't apply, or where we're able to make up our own rules. But when we come to the scripture, we find a very different approach to marriage and to family life, a place where there are rules that tell us how to live as husbands and wives, as children, as parents, as in this case, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, slaves and masters. This is a, a section of household rules, household codes. And complete households in the New Testament times had a husband, a wife, children, 
And if they were wealthy enough, they had slaves, or it's translated here, bond servants. Now, not every household had all these components. There were households led by women, in the case of widows usually. There were households without children. And there were many households without the means to have slaves or servants. But all of those component parts are addressed in this section. Now, God established two of these three relationships at the beginning. He established marriage at the beginning. That's a creation ordinance of God. And he also established family at the beginning. That's another creation ordinance of God. And so these are permanent. There is the third aspect, slaves and masters. That was a a part of the Roman household at the time, but that's not established by God, and we'll deal with that when we come to it. But that's one that we will deal with differently than the first two because the first two are permanent. Now, the radical break, the radical break that Christians made with the social distinctions in the church, we saw that in verse 11 Uh, Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So these, these social divisions were eradicated in the church, and that was a radical break. But they didn't go on a campaign to overthrow society and the structures in society because Christians still had to live in society. So in the church, those divisions were 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 taken away, the distinctions were taken away, but each Christian had to play certain roles, either in God-ordained or socially established customs of the day. And that's what we're seeing here. Now, this section stands by itself, this section from verse 18 of chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 1, but it also continues with what we've been seeing. And I want to bring you up to speed, particularly if you haven't been here for this series as to where this fits in the, in the whole argument of, of Colossians. The first chapters of Colossians talking about what God has done in Jesus Christ and sending his son in him giving his life to redeem a people for himself who come to God through faith in Christ. And then he begins to talk about the new life in Christ. And that's what we've been looking at these last few weeks. If then we've been raised with Christ, verse 1 of chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above. And there he began to talk about the the life above, the, the heavenly life, and what does that look like? And we saw up to this point that if we have died with Christ, then we should cast off and put to death those habits of the old life. They no longer fit. They're no longer ours. And we saw that in verse 5 and verse 8 of this chapter. And in their place, so that we don't remain undressed, we are to dress ourselves to put on the characteristics of the new life that are in, in accordance with Christ and with God. And so it is taking off. It is putting on. And now we're getting even more concrete We're getting more concrete here. We're talking about mundane, day-to-day relationships that we have and what the new life looks like in those relationships. So, So I want you to see how this is. This is the life above. This is the life, the heavenly life, but it plays itself out in these mundane relationships that we have from day to day. You may remember that That phrase, I don't think it's used much, but it was a dismissive phrase, and I think it was a country song. I think maybe Johnny Cash, uh, so heavenly-minded, 
uh, of no earthly good? Well, that's not the perspective here. The more, the more heavenly-minded one is, the more one is focused on the things above, the more that person is able to engage with the mundane relationships here on this earth. So we don't live out the life above by disconnecting from the world, but by living out these worldly relationships of marriage and work and family. Now, there's an ongoing debate, as you could imagine, about these verses about wives and husbands. Some consider them to be culturally bound pieces of advice that no longer apply in our culture. We have moved beyond these ideas. That's, that's how some people look at this. And some of them, some of these people, consider these to be oppressive remnants of the patriarchy, which is the enemy, and this is what we are to reject. Others, on the other hand, interpret them as radically Christian innovations that overturned the norms of the day. Now, comparison with the cultural norms of the day can be instructive. And there are those who say, well, this sounds like the Stoic teaching, and this is typical Jewish teaching, and this is Roman structure, and so on, and they make connection with the norms of the day. However, we're on, we're on, we're on firmer ground if we see this instruction in the light of the biblical story. And what we find is the instruction here very neatly resolves a problem that was introduced almost at the beginning. We have a problem in human relationships. We have a problem introduced into the story very early on, right after the creation, right after that first sin. And we find, lo and behold, that this instruction to husbands and wives is the solution to the problem that was created right after the very beginning. And so, in other words, if you find a key that perfectly fits and unlocks a certain door and only that door, you don't need to go look for other doors to explain what that key is for. Are you with me? So, let's go. We're, what we're going to do then is go back to the Old Testament, find the problem, find that lock that needs open, and then we'll see how this, this instruction to Christians those who have died and risen with Christ through faith, solves the problem. And we need to go all the way to the back, almost to the back. We, we read in our Old Testament reading, we read about the creation of the woman and the creation of marriage. But then we read in chapter 3 that the man and the woman rebelled against God. They sinned, and then God comes and speaks to them, and he pronounces curses on them in different aspects of their lives. And in chapter 3, verse 16, it says this. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. But I want you to focus on the last part. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, that's a little bit ambiguous in and of itself. Your desire, what does that mean? But if we turn one chapter over, in chapter 4, verse 7, we find this. Here, Cain is downcast because his offering wasn't accepted by God. And God says to him, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? That's verse 6. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Now listen to this. 
Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so the curse on the woman says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Cain, he says, Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This is very, this is almost the same words in Hebrew and also in English. So we can interpret one in the light of the other. What does it mean that sin's desire is for you? What does it want to do to you? It wants to grab you. It wants to to master you. It says it's crouching at the door. Sin wants to have you, but not in a good sense. It wants to dominate you. It wants to control you. But he says to Cain, you must do what? You must rule over it. Go back to 316. Your desire will be for your husband. What does that mean? In the light of 4-7, it means that your desire will be to dominate your husband. You will try to control your husband, and he will rule over you. Why? He's bigger and he's stronger. At least that reason. And so this is not, this is not something good. This is not something normative. This is a problem that's introduced right at the beginning of marriage that there will be a competition set up, that the woman will try to dominate her husband, and the man, with his strength or whatever advantages he has, will be able to rule over her. This is not a good situation. It's not being described as, as what should be. Now, with that in mind, with that in mind, we go to our text. And our text says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, before looking at the specific responsibilities of wives and husbands, I want you to notice a few things about these instructions that are important. The instructions are for wives and husbands. The instructions are not for women and for men. This is not teaching about relative relationships between women and men. It's about wives and husbands. So I know this doesn't apply to all of you. It applies to wives, and it applies to husbands. The secondly, the instructions treat wives and husbands as full members of the church and as responsible moral agents. It it, it doesn't treat either of them as as a semi-part or as somebody that's under charge of someone else. No, they're both members of the church, and they are being addressed as moral agents, both of them. And this is where we see that in the church... There is this erasure of distinctions. Third, the instructions here are much shorter than in Ephesians 5. And I realize that in the past when I have preached on this section, I haven't preached on this section. I've preached on Ephesians 5 because it's so much easier because there's so much more information there. But I'm going to try today. I don't know whether I'll completely succeed. I'm going to try to stick with what the Colossians would have had before them, which is very, very brief. But I do refer you to Ephesians 5 for the bigger and longer explanation. The fourth thing, the instructions tell both wife and husband what to do and what not to do. But they do not tell the husband to do anything or to make the wife do anything or the wife to make the husband do anything. So it says, wives, this is for you. Husbands, you don't need to pay attention to this. Wives, this is for you. And then, husbands, this is for you. Wives, this is not your business. So they're addressed each separately. And this is important because when I've done marital counseling, when there are problems in marriage, 
it's almost always the same presenting problem. They come in and they point a finger at each other and, and the, the husband says, my wife doesn't respect me. And the, the wife says, my husband doesn't love me. And I have, this may sound very insensitive, and I, and I, and I, I do commiserate with them a little bit, and then I say, the bottom line is, that's not your problem. What your husband does is not your problem. What your wife does is not your problem. What you do is under your control. That is your issue, and that's what we're going to focus on. Now, they may or may not like that because they usually want me to fix the husband or fix the wife, but the problem is not the husband or the wife. It's the, the one who's complaining about the other. Now, I'm not justifying the other. You understand that. But each one is told to deal with his or her responsibility. And the last thing, before we look at the instructions, these instructions assume that treating our spouses a certain way is something that we do, not something that happens to us. It's something that we do, not something that happens to us. And this is very practical uh, observation because, once again, in counseling, I will have wives come to me and say, I, I just don't respect my husband. Or they'll say, the, the husband will say, you know, I, I, I just don't love my wife anymore. And they're always surprised when I say, that's fantastic. You're coming in to confess your sins. You're recognizing what the problem is. And so we're halfway there. You don't love your wife. Exactly. That's the problem. Now we have something to work on. And they, they're stunned. They say, no, you, you, don't, you don't understand. I'm just not feeling anything toward my wife anymore. I said, well, don't worry about that at this point. You've identified the problem. You're not loving your wife, so now we have something to work on. You see, what are they treating it as? They're treating it as something that happens to them. I fell in love. It happened to me. And now, well, I just fell out. Something happened to me over which I don't have any control. But this is saying, no, wife, you do have control. Husband, you do have control. This is, this is not something that happened to you. This is something that you need to heed. Okay, now the instructions finally to the text. What are the instructions, wives? Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This, uh, this word submit, it is a word that means to order yourself underneath, to place yourself underneath, to order yourself under. And it's the same verb that's used to describe the Son of God's ordering himself under the will of the Father. And it's the same verb that's used for Jesus of Nazareth ordering his life under the authority of Joseph and Mary. So, I mentioned that, and it's used in a number of other different ways. Young people in the church uh, ordering their lives under the direction of the elders. Um, uh, citizens or subjects of a, a country ordering themselves under the, uh, the instructions of the, the, the legal authorities. And so used in a number of different ways. But, but I mention that because oftentimes we hear this word submit and we, we read into it inferiority. Let me ask you, is the son inferior to the father? No, of course not. Let me ask you this. Is Jesus inferior to Joseph and Mary? Of course not. 
And so we ought not to read that into this. But here we have this command to order under. And this activity, here's what I want you to notice about this activity. The wife ordering her life under her husband. This activity is the exact opposite of what we saw in Genesis 3.16. In Genesis 3.16, your desire will be for your husband. And we interpret that as what? Your desire will be to place yourself over your husband. Your desire will be to control your husband. Your desire will be to dominate your husband. And this is the exact opposite of that. This is, this is the key that, that solves that problem. If the, if the wives' tendency is to try to dominate their husbands, then here's the antidote. Here is the, the opposite of that. Wives, place yourselves under your husbands. And then it says something that, that is actually could be interpreted one of two ways. And either one, I, I suppose, would be, would be fitting. But it says, as is fitting in the Lord. And this could be either... Wives, submit to, your, submit to your husbands because it's fitting that you submit to your husbands. That could be, and we have other texts that would indicate that, or it could be describing the submission. That is, wives, submit to your husbands in a way that is fitting in the Lord. And I'm not sure. I, I, I'm, Sunday arrived, and I wasn't sure quite yet what I think is the proper interpretation, but there are texts that would, that would, would support either one of those. It's fitting that the wife submit to her husband. And how should she f- submit to her husband? In a way, not any old way, but in a way that is fitting in the Lord, fitting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the wives. Husbands. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Christian husbands are to love their, or I should say, our wives. And what is loving? Loving is giving. Loving is sacrificing. Loving is laying down. Loving is putting the interest of the other before your own. Jesus said it like this. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So if you want a a working definition of love, it's laying down your life for another. Husbands, love your wives. Now, let's go back to Genesis 3, 16. You shall desire your husband to dominate him, but he shall do what? He shall rule over you. And here's the antidote for the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Lay down your lives for your wives. Serve your wives. Sacrifice for your wives. Now, there's an added prohibition here for the husbands. And it may be because this is the the sin to which husbands are particularly prone. It says here in our translation, and do not be harsh with them. It, It actually perhaps more literally says, and do not be embittered towards them. And if you're embittered embittered towards them, you would probably treat them harshly. So that's how these go together. And one commentator observed that that's what happens. That's what happens when husbands are focused on their wives doing or not doing what their wives are supposed to do instead of focusing on their responsibility. Because they find that their wives aren't satisfying all of their demands and all of their needs and they become embittered. And having become embittered, they treat them harshly and there are lots of ways to treat 
wives harshly, cutting sarcasm, unflattering comparisons, making fun, impatience, criticisms, raised voices, indifference, ignoring, all sorts of ways to treat our wives harshly. Now, what do we have here? We have this this competition in Genesis chapter 3, and then in Colossians, we have another kind of competition. Did you notice that? In Genesis 3, we have this competition. Who's going to dominate? Who's going to be on top? Who's going to be in charge here? Who's going to control? And now we get to Colossians, and we find that there's a competition. Who's going to outdo the other one in serving? Who's going to, who's going to, going to lower himself or herself more? Who's going to get under the, you see, you see the, the wife is ordering her life under the husband and the husband is laying down his life for the wife. This is something like a race to the bottom, not a race to the top to see who can be in charge and who can control and who can dominate. This is a race to the bottom to see who can get under the other and serve the other and lift the other up. And so do you see how this is the, this is the exact response? This is the exact antidote to the problem that is introduced in Genesis and a problem, by the way, that has been lived out many, many times in many, many marriages. If we go to the end, I don't read the, the whole article, but go back to C.S. Lewis's article about the sermon and the lunch. He comes to the conclusion, he offers five recommendations for how we need to preach about family life and about marriage, and I'll just read the, the end of it. He asks this question, do you remember that 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 boorish pastor who said home is where we can really be ourselves. Well, Lewis asks this question, how then are people to behave at home? If a man can't be comfortable and unguarded, can't take his ease and be himself in his house, where can he? That is, I confess, the trouble. The answer is an alarming one. There is nowhere this side of heaven where one can safely lay the reins on the horse's neck. It will never be lawful simply to be ourselves unless ourselves have become sons of God. This does not mean, of course, that there is no difference between home life and and general society. It does mean that home life has its own rule of courtesy a code more intimate, more subtle, more sensitive, and therefore in some ways more difficult than that of the outer world. Finally, must we not teach that if the home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules? There cannot be a common life without a regula. The alternative to rule is not freedom but the unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member. If you're married, if you're married, how is your, how's your marriage? It is a competition. Is it a competition to see who can dominate in which the most selfish member wins? Or it is, is it a competition to see who can outserve the other in which both win. You see, if it's a competition to dominate, both lose. And if it's a competition 
to serve, then both win. That's how Christian marriage rules work. And this this ought not to surprise us. Because if you look at each of these roles, each of these roles is a means of grace because each of these roles, talking of means of grace in general, it, it communicates grace to us. It shows us grace because each of these roles points us to Jesus. Wives, submit to your husbands. The son submitted himself to the father's will. He submitted himself to Joseph and Mary. He submitted himself to a a life of difficulty and ignominy. He submitted himself to the rejection of his own people. He submitted himself to the trial under Pontius Pilate and the the sarcasm of Herod. He submitted his back to the the stripes of the, the Roman soldiers. He submitted himself to death and even death on a cross. That's the submission of the son. Wives, submit to your own husbands. The son submitted everything. And he's also, he's also a model for the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Do you see how the key fits? Do you see how this solves the problem? Do you see how this transforms the marriage of husbands and wives who have died with Christ and risen to the life above? Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for Jesus who submitted himself to death on a cross so that we would not die eternally so that we could live eternally and live the life above now we thank you for Jesus who showed us what love is by laying down his life for his friends I pray for myself as a husband I pray for the other husbands and for the future husbands. I pray for the wives and the future wives. I pray, O oh God, that as people see us, the way we treat our spouses, they would see a glimpse of Jesus. And we pray in his name.